Okay, hello and welcome to Making of Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to uh, write his dissertation, um, get a job, raise a child, and survive the boredom of coronavirus. Uh, today, uh, I'm very uh, uh, happy to introduce uh, Catherine Oliverius, uh, Assistant Professor of History at Stanford, and we're going to be talking about uh, her upcoming book, Necropolis, and her uh Excellent AHR article, Immunity, Capital, and Power in Antebellum, New Orleans. Welcome, uh, Catherine. Hi, glad to be here. Um, and if, if, if uh, people want to check you out online, where, where, where can they go? So they can find me at Catalabarius um, on Twitter. Um, that's probably the best place. Yeah. Okay. And I will drop that into show notes. Um, and as always, uh, if you really like the show, you can give me some money at patreon.com slash making of a historian. Um, so, uh, uh, Catherine, your, 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 your article, and I, and I think your book takes place in New Orleans in the 19th century. And I, I was kind of surprised by that because when I think of New Orleans, I just kind of, it seems like a fun tourist destination. There's like Mardi Gras and like cool cemeteries and, and True Blood is set there. But when you and other scholars who I've read about talking about New Orleans talk about it, 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 it seems like a lot more businessy in the 19th century. Can you tell me a little bit about New Orleans in the 19th century? Right. So I think most people today, if they are familiar with New Orleans, if they're not from there, um, you know, they think of Mardi Gras, they think of the cemeteries. They've probably been to a bachelorette party there or something. Um, and in the 19th century, you're right. Um, this was a very different place and a much more sort of important city um, in the national zeitgeist. So this was, in some sense, what we would call the seat of slave racial capitalism. So hmm. New Orleans, um, which is this, it's a it's a port city. It's at the base of the Mississippi River. Um, and it was founded in 1718 um, as a, a sort of outpost by the French. Um, and throughout the, 19th, the 18th century, it switched hands between um, the French and the Spanish and it became an American possession in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase, um, which was, you know, vast land, um, you know, basically it, the Louisiana Purchase doubled the, the size of the United States um, and gave access to um, the U.S. to the Mississippi River, which was very important. Um, so you have this, you know, New Orleans um, in the 19th century. It's it's the city. Um, you need to have a city sort of at the base of the Mississippi because you need to have a kind of processing place, um, a market. Hmm through which all of the goods of the interior can descend the Missouri and Ohio and then Mississippi rivers um, and flow out to places around the world. And why is the river so important? Like it, it's not important as much today, but what, why is it important in the 19th century? Like, it, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've heard people talk about this, but I, I, there has to be a city at the mouth of the Mississippi. I don't understand why. So think about the Mississippi River as sort of the artery um, that bisects the United States. So the drainage basin of the Mississippi River um, is vast. It goes all the way from the Rocky Mountains to Appalachia and oh, wow. you know, all the way into Canada. So this is the area through which, you know, if you are growing cotton, but also if you are producing um, wheat or corn or hogs in um, Kentucky, a lot of the time this um, you, you will use the Mississippi, Mississippi River as the sort of um, – the vector, the the vessel through which um, you move your goods to market. Oh. So, so this is this is um, the Mississippi is a huge river as well. This is you know one of this is a, a massive um, river system, and so you have this um, 
sort of it's it's in the days before railways and the days before canals and the days before you know even when we had canals um and especially when we had steamships um but you know boats that could go up the mississippi river um which started in about 1812 this becomes the kind of you know this is like the i-95 on the east coast or something this is the you know most important sort of thoroughfare um, through which the American economy is based. Um, so this is why you need to have a city um, or some kind of place um, that can process all of these goods, a place that can, um, you know, not just process cotton or sugar, but also, you know, sort of house all the people and do the customs work and do the kind of geopolitical um, work to try to you know, move goods from Kentucky um, or, you know, Missouri all the way to Cairo or Bremen or oh, wow. So, so, and, and I just want to mention one thing about all those different goods that you met that that that, mm-hmm. that you talked about, and and they're all bulky. We don't think about this a lot because, like, shipping bulky goods doesn't really. It's not really that difficult with internal combustion engines, but back in the 19th century, shipping stuff like cotton or sugar was really difficult over land because it's really heavy, right? And so you so, can get all so expensive, therefore, also to, to ship things over land as well. So yeah. this, you know, this radically reduces. Um, you know, I'm sure it saved a lot of people's, you know, back muscles um, on the one hand, but also, you know, it, it radically reduced the price of moving bulky goods. Okay, so New Orleans is a is is a place where all of these bulky goods are processed, but also where there's kind of like political and and and, and economic stuff going on around the 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 marketing of those goods. So it's where people like I would guess would get loans to 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 grow stuff, where merchants would buy and sell things, where ship owners would would go and and charter boats to take cotton all around the world. Is that am I am I getting it? That's precisely right. So New Orleans is, you know, this there's actually not in the 19th century much manufacturing in New Orleans. Um, there never were sort of looms or um, the industry that had was developing a pace in places like Lowell or you know places in the north. Um, so this is really a sort of pass through economy in which um, you have cotton factories, um, places that are rating the quality um, of cotton and the cost. You have um, a, a pretty extensive banking system um, to be able to give loans to planters and farmers and merchants. Um, you, this is also the place that, of course, that you can, that you can, you know, rent, you can find, pla- you know, sort of, you can rent ship um, footage on ships so that you can mm. ship it elsewhere. And it's also, of course, um, the nation's largest slave market, um, you know, not so long after the Louisiana purchase, um, this becomes um, the, the place through which, most white enslavers and planters would purchase people to work on their plantations in, you know, across the deep South. Um, so not just in New Orleans itself, but in Mississippi in Alabama and Texas. And of course, in the sort of Southern bayous of Louisiana, um, those cypress swamps um, where this sort of, the, you have the cotton economy developing along this, the Mississippi, Mississippi river to the North, but also you have um, the sugar bowl developing your This is the only place in America where sugar is being grown and it's making, you know, some people extremely wealthy. So, so you call New Orleans the, the heart of, of slave racial capitalism because like all of the, the, the little tributaries of the Mississippi, a, a lot of the bulk goods that are being shipped down it are, are are made by slave labor, and because New Orleans is 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 just literally a marketplace for slaves. Is that is is that what, a good description of how this is like slave racial capitalism, or am, am I missing something? 
No, that, I think that's a that's a great description, and it's also, I mean, I think it's it's also important to, to sort of note that I think when a lot of people think about a slave market, they think about a physical one physical place in town. However, I, I imagine some some scene from a movie where there's a person in chains and a, a, an auctioneer. Yeah. And- exactly, and, and you know, and you there are examples of enslaved people being sold in you know, coffee houses and on street corners and in mm. hotel room lobbies. And, you know, it's, this is this, in some sense, you could say this whole city is one vast slave market, which means essentially this is, you know, this is the site of incredible um, human suffering and commodification in, you know, on a level that existed in other Southern cities, but perhaps um, at the highest level here. So in New Orleans, if you're, if you're black, are you automatically a slave? Like, is it just like there's whites and, 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 and slaves? No, so New Orleans, I, I think in, this is, um, th- I think this is sort of apparent to m- many historians who work on New Orleans, which is that it's often considered to be sort of a Caribbean-esque, uh, sorry, excuse me, a Caribbean-esque city that's kind of more similar to, um, you know, Le Cap in Saint-Domingue or um, Havana, where there's a sort of tripartite racial system here, mm-hmm. where you have um, white people who are free um, at the t- sort of top of the system. And then you also have, um, a, there's a pretty large uh, population in New Orleans proper of free black people. Um, and then you also have enslaved people. So to be in New Orleans, it was not necessarily, um, a, you know, a sort of absolute given that if you appeared to be black, you would be um, enslaved. Um, here, in fact, is the, probably the largest um, in the, in the, for the South, um, New Orleans um, hosts the largest free black population of any, okay. of, of any Southern city. Well, let's shift gears a bit and talk about another cause of, of, of human misery in New Orleans, and that, that's yellow fever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of my students wrote a paper about yellow fever this semester, and I'll be honest, I don't really know a ton about it. Can you tell me what, what yellow fever is and, and, or, or, or how people in New Orleans saw yellow fever and like how bad it was? So, by the way, that's a very, I mean, most Americans today don't even know what yellow fever is, let alone that, you know, what the symptoms were. I think were. it's a fever that makes you yellow, frankly, like, honestly. <laughs> no, um, so it's funny, though, because this was the most terrifying disease, you know, across large parts of the Atlantic world, um, the sort of greater Caribbean. Um, so this is a disease that um, struck many, many American cities in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century. Um, there was a very you know, there's a very serious epidemic of yellow fever in Philadelphia, um, famously in 1793. Um, hmm. There were sort of sporadic, um, very, very lethal epidemics in New York and Boston and Baltimore. Um, by the 19th century, we start to see sort of yellow fever move increasingly um, southwards. And then really, this becomes a problem that's most closely associated with New Orleans. So you ask, what is yellow fever? So yellow fever is mosquito-borne favovirus, um, which is, so this is a disease that's spread by mosquitoes. Um, it is famously, it, so you, you need sort of three things for epidemic yellow fever to take place. So you need um, a hot, a sort of hot and humid um, climate. Um, you need a healthy mosquito population. Um, and the hot climate is to help these mosquitoes bite on that, mm. the warmer it is, the more they bite. And then you need a densely packed, um, this is an actual term of art of public health, immunologically naive population. (laughs) So you have this, so when you have these three pieces of the puzzle together, it can lead to some very disastrous epidemiological realities. So New Orleans, um, 
it had been, you know, we see we start to see occasional epidemics um, in the 1790s um, during the Spanish period. And, you know, the first epidemic, you know, that's sort of documented is 17, 1796 um, and killed many, 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 you know, hundreds and thousands of people. But this was sort of new at that point. By the 19th century, we have epidemics of yellow fever hitting every summer um, between the months of about July to November. So this is called the fever season. Um, we see these epidemics every two or three years, and they could be extremely, extremely lethal. And this is becomes this is also a problem that worsens over time because of immigration. So the more boats you have coming from the Caribbean or from West Africa or from South America, the more mosquitoes you were importing, the more boats you have of people coming, you know, down, you know, trying to sort of make it, um, you know, trying to. It, trying to tap into this cotton and slave and sugar economy, you know, more boats you have from Boston or from London or from, you know, any place in Europe, you're, you know, you're sort of increasing all of the, um, you're increasing the risk and increasing the chances that an epidemic is going to happen. Of, of, of those three th- things that you said are the preconditions for, for, for yellow fever, uh, mm-hmm. hot and humid, a uh, good place for mosquitoes and densely packed uh, yeah. environment. It seems like the growth of New Orleans as a a, a a city ramps up two out of the three of them. Yeah. It ramps up the conditions for mosquitoes and it ramps up the, the number of people uh, 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 living in tightly packed places. So, so, so we have this situation where, where New Orleans is getting a fever season. Every single mm-hmm. year, people are getting yellow fever. They know, do they know it's from mosquitoes? No. So they don't, so they don't, there's a great deal that, um, 19th century Orleanians do not know about this disease. In fact, this is a, this is a sort of I could say this is a very high risk, low information setting. So they don't know that it's spread by mosquitoes. They don't know why it comes some years and why it does not come other years. They don't know. Uh, there's no cure. There's no inoculation. There's no vaccine. There wouldn't be until the 20th century. Hmm. They, there's no proof as to why it seems to affect some people more than others. Um, and so they're living in this kind of like information vacuum. And of course, as we know, and I think we've, we've seen sort of firsthand today, when we live in information vacuums, um, misinformation is, cre- you know, is created yeah. a great too. So, you know, there were a lot of theories about this disease and, you know, so you have all, you, there's so much you don't know, but then the other part of this puzzle, of course, is that dying from yellow fever is utterly horrible. Um, mm. This is, you know, victims famously sort of experienced this, kind of onset of anxiety and chills and nausea. And then suddenly they have muscle pains and, you know, their back is killing them and they have a headache that they can't shake. And it's like, you know, I've seen examples of people saying it's like their head was filled with molten lead. Um, And then, you know, in serious cases, people will start to lose organ function and you will go into a coma and die, but not before the telltale symptom of yellow fever is black vomit. Um, So very end right before you die, you vomit up this partly coagulated blood that looks um, a lot like coffee grounds. And so people, you know, it's not only are you, you're living in fear of this disease, um, but also um, you don't know anything about it. So that's, you know, it's, it's a petrifying sort of cocktail or recipe for um, anxiety. How, how was it living during fever season? It seems like we have this situation where you have this, this, bustling city that every couple years becomes a death trap like yeah. yeah how how was it to be a person in new orleans during fever season <laughs> i think not fun um is the first way to describe it so the if you generally a sort of pattern developed um 
on a sort of around the year. So, you know, business is booming until, you know, May, maybe June. And then people start to get nervous about, you know, is the fever season going to come this year? Or is is, is the yellow fever going to come back? And then, you know, once the Board of Health um, or a doctor reported an official case of yellow fever, there was a mass exodus out of the city. So anybody who had funds or freedom who could leave would try to leave. And so the rich, this is, you know, sort of classic, the rich always have the privilege of being able to leave um, diseased spaces and sort of socially distance themselves um, from dangerous places. But you see, so the rich will go to their countryside plantations. They will go to New York to do business. They will go to London to take in the theater for the season. And the poor and the enslaved are essentially forced um, to remain in this town. And that, and that's a, you know, we have, you know, various examples of this. It's quite, you know, it's horrifying. You, um, you know, the, the streets essentially go quiet. Um, there's nobody outside. Um, at night, the city council, um, by about the 1830s, they would fire um, cannon into the air, thinking that this would dispel the disease causing miasmas, um, as they thought it, you know, this is, the, these diseases were caused by bad airs, essentially. Yeah. In, in um, the 19th century in London, uh, uh, even up until the 1880s or 90s, there were proposals to make giant fans to cure mm. the cholera, uh, oh. to blow away the miasmas from 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 the city because they didn't they didn't know the vector. Um, yeah, it's it's this is I would man I would love to see some sketches of those of those fans and what they what they would have looked like. Um, the I mean this is it, it's it's terrifying um, and it, it, you know and and then you're basically waiting it out. This is the the sort of long and short of it. So you you know you're waiting essentially until the first frost. Mm. Um, which came generally in around, you know, sort of November. And that, cause that was the sort of, you know, they did not know this, but we know this now, this is what killed mosquitoes. So, you know, cases would then abate thereafter. Um, but it was utterly petrifying. And you're, you know, this is the, you know, I've see, seen examples of young men who can't sleep at night because they're so anxious. They, you know, mm-hmm. get up and look in the mirror every five minutes because they're looking for yellowing skin or jaundice. One of the signs of, you know, if you're looking for bloodshot eyes, um, you're just in this kind of, you know, kind of limbo awaiting this disease or awaiting to you know, escape it for one more year. And I, I just want to mention a, a parallel between how we're dealing with COVID-19 now yeah. and how you're describing uh, 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 New Orleans and yellow fever. Like right now, one of the things that's really st- struck me is how social distancing is, an, yeah. is incredibly privileged. Oh, yeah. Professional people can do, you know, can do their work over Zoom or online or, 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 you know, however you want. The super rich people I know are all going off, you know, hours outside of, of the Bay Area to Sea Ranch and other places like that to, yeah. to wait out the coronavirus and, and work remotely. But when you go to public spaces, it's, it's poor people. Um, yeah, you go to the supermarket. It's 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 people working for Instacart. There's you know the 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 risk is being um, uh, put on the backs of the of 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 the least privileged in society. And it seems when if I was walking down the street in New Orleans in the 19th century, like those those empty streets that you so vividly uh, evoked, I think right like most people would be poor, right? Yeah, most people would be poor, or they would be enslaved, and they would be out on some kind of errand um, to procure a coffin or procure food or something to that effect. And so basically these are not people who, you know, either they don't have a choice because they're enslaved or their choice is not perfect because they're poor. Yeah. And this is, I think we, you know, we are 100% seeing this exact um, same 
you know, not, not, we don't live in a slave society anymore. So it's not the exact same dynamic, but it's certainly on, in terms of sort of who is having to take risk. Um, it is disproportionately being put upon the shoulders of people who cannot afford um, to socially distance um, or do not have jobs that will allow them to do so. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's, in our society, in American society right now, the people who have to take on the most epidemiological risk um, during this pandemic are disproportionately poor people and people of color. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's um, this, you know, I, I wish that this was not the case that we were repeating history in such a manner, but um, it does seem that we have not learned some lessons from the past about how privilege plays out in um, one's ability to insulate oneself from, you know, very dangerous um, and highly contagious disease. So, so what happened in New Orleans after you got yellow fever and you survived? Like, could you get it again? Like, like was it just like if you were stuck in New Orleans, would this this be a uh, an anxious summer every single year? What what would what would happen to you? So, the, so if you get sick of the yellow fever, one of two things will happen to you. Um, the unlucky fifty percent. So fifty percent. Well, fifty percent of people died. Um, this is the 19th century. It's, uh, yellow fever is less lethal today um, than it was in the 19th century. So half of people died. The other half, the lucky survivors, um, became immune for life. So they, you know, they could not get um, they could not get yellow fever again. So you were considered after you had survived yellow fever that you were a so-called acclimated citizen hmm. that had passed this sort of disease Rubicon, and you could be now it's sort of admitted to higher echelons of success in slave racial capitalism if you are a white person. Hmm. So you have this, you have, you have this, you know, I, I talked a little earlier about this, the racial hierarchy of New Orleans, where you have white people, you have free black people, you have enslaved people. And then commingling with this hierarchy, you have another hierarchy, which is that you have acclimated citizens on top, the people who've survived this disease. They are followed by so-called unacclimated strangers, people who are sort of in this probationary period awaiting their brush with yellow fever. And they are followed by the dead, um, who in the sort of local logic of the time, <laughs> local logic of the time were considered to be insufficiently manly or moral or courageous hmm. to survive this disease. It's it's really interesting how the language of citizenship and nation is being echoed yeah. in this. Like like you are an acclimatized citizen of a new kind of nation, not like yeah. New Orleans, but like of this yellow fever world. And if you haven't passed through the 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 crucible of yellow fever you're a stranger a, a yeah. foreigner you, even i imagine if you lived there you know for years like if you if you're a snow what, what do they call it? a snow bunny if you go off to to new york every summer or or or, or to london you're not a real new new orleans citizen and so right? this is this is the i think a lot of people also will when they think about new orleans too um you know the even today, um, this is the case. So in the 19th century, um, if you were, there was, um, there was sort of put a, there were sort of two more descriptions that came into this, which is that you were either a Creole or you were, you were an American. Hmm. Um, and Creole was somebody who had been born locally, somebody who'd been born in Louisiana or in the tropics and had um, sort of by a birthright, it was considered at the time um, that you had developed your sort of creolism meant that you were immune to yellow fever and attacks of it. Whereas um, you know, if you were an American, you had to, um, and this is, of course, this is a very simplified label that they were using. You had to face this disease yourself and become a sort of local, you've got to be baptized as a citizen. That's what they, that's how they described it um, by facing this disease and surviving. 
Well, let's talk. Let's talk about the people who did face this disease and 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 survived, and 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 when what people made of their survival. You mentioned that like one way that people saw the dead was like kind of less deserving that they that they had been put to the test of their their citizenship of 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 a yellow fever zone and they'd they'd failed because they yeah. weren't manly enough they weren't you know they weren't virtuous enough they drank they they didn't sleep they they didn't work hard let, let, tell, tell me a little bit about about what this experience was like for for, for people yeah so so what could immunity do for you? Um, so yeah. and I should say one, I just one, one sort of quick note on this. Before diagnostic blood testing, it was actually impossible to verify whether or not you were, you had survived yellow fever. And the, making matters a little bit even more complicated than this is that there are many other diseases in the deep south. So malaria, the big one, but also dengue fever and, you know, a variety of other fevers, which could be confused, hmm. potentially yellow fever. So you're never quite sure if you've survived yellow fever. But if you're pretty sure and, you know, you you know, are willing to sort of perform this, what can we need to do for you? Um, you will, you gain what I call amino capital, which is this sort of socially acknowledged lifelong immunity to this highly lethal disease. And this gives you access to higher realms of social, political, and economic power if you are white. Hmm. And so, you know, if you are unacclimated, um, you quickly learn when you arrive in New Orleans that you basically cannot get a job, that you hmm. uh, cannot live in certain boarding houses, um, that you cannot get a life insurance policy, that um, you will essentially be sort of socially ostracized because acclimated people did not socialize with unacclimated, um, especially really? men. Um, because, you know, if I, I've seen all these examples of Creole fathers who say, like, tell their daughters, um, you cannot even social, you can't even speak to that man until he's been acclimated because it's too risky. Um, what hmm. happens if you fall in love with him or you marry him and then he dies and leaves you widowed or, you know, miserable. Um, so there's, there are all of these various sort of um, social and economic impediments, of course, which, and because these existed, um, these um, sort of impediments to full civic and social and economic participation for white people, um, I, this creates a perverse incentive um, where you have people actively seeking to get sick um, because knowing that the death rate is 50%, um, knowing that this is a highly, highly risky move, it is, yes, it's very risky, but the consequences of not being acclimated are seen as worse um, than risking death. And so you see people actively, you know, seeking to get sick. So you see people, um, they will huddle in basements or in, in, in crowded rooms together with other sick people. They will jump into the beds of their friends who've just died and roll around, um, hoping to get ill. They will, I've seen examples of people eat black vomit. Um, really? Hoping that they get this. And, you know, if you can, if you can try to put yourself into that person's shoes for a moment, you know, this is a disease that, you know, 50% of people are going to die from this disease. So that says something about just how much epidemiological risk people are willing to take on for, you know, the potential economic and social gain thereafter. I mean, and in some ways it's kind of cool. Like it's brave to do that. Like it's such yeah. a mark. Like it, it, if you do that and survive, it's such a telling calling card of, of these like risk-taking virtues, right? Like how did you survive yellow fever? Oh, I came here and I didn't wait for it to, to, to strike me, I ate black vomit. <laughs> and and, and you, you've hit on, you've sort of hit the nail on the head with this, which is that surviving yellow fever becomes this kind of catch-all statement of character. And it's incorporated hmm. in the genesis stories of all of the elites of New Orleans, all of the politicians, all of the major planters, all of the major merchants. And they 
you know, they will, you know, they'll sit in Maspero as a coffee shop or they'll sit in the lobby of the St. Charles Hotel and they will swap tales of their acclamations, like, like war stories. Um, and they will describe this as sort of like, you know, this was, they'll all sort of joke about it. They say like, well, you know, I got acclimated in 1817 and I had these symptoms. And, the, and it's, it's, you know, it's a social, um, it's a way of sort of forging commonality on the one hand between acclimated people, acclimated white people, men, but it's also, of course, you know, if, if we equate, if you equate surviving a disease with morality, um, mm. that puts the responsibility on people um, to be, you know, it, it, it essentially, um, it, you know, it, it reduces or it, it rids the sort of conversation of that this is anything to do with luck. Um, it makes it into a personal choice. Yeah. Um, and if you can, if you can personally choose to survive, therefore you are, you know, good and moral and, um, you know, that you've sort of been sanctioned, um, as they saw it, by God and the environment to rule and slave racial capitalism. I mean, that's also part of like the ethic of capitalism as a whole, right? Like that that the 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 value of of the businessman is proven by his success or failure in the market. You know, if you get rich, if you risk everything and get rich, well, it's because you're smarter than everybody else. You have good genes. You're you 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 knew everything. And if you failed, it, it's a it's 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 proof of your of of the fact that you as a person aren't 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 worth as much, right? And this is just kind of a uh, a biological version of that. If you survive, totally. you're, you're, you're worthy. It, it, it seems striking these, 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 and I, I, I want to just emphasize like the, the, the gender about it, all, all these men. Like, I wonder, have you seen any women sitting around talking about their, their uh, acclimatization stories? Cause yellow fever didn't care about gender, but did, no. did was, was there this as, as potent uh, an identity marker with, with yellow fever with women? No. Um, so the, so actually, so, you know, some uh, statisticians and economists and historians have worked on this question about, um, gender, gender differentiation between cases of yellow fever. It is true that it's from, if you look at death registers, more men, um, seem to have died from this disease. That could be a, that's, that's for a variety of circumstances, nothing innate to do with gender. Um, that's because men are more often, out on the levee, sweating, yeah. wearing clothing that exposes their ankles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and New Orleans also, the population also skewed quite male, but I've never seen, I've never seen, you know, I, I, I would, you know, if anybody listening to this has ever seen a letter to this effect, please email me immediately and, you know, wake me up and call me. Um, <laughs> the, the, the idea I've never seen women sitting around saying like, Oh, I'm, I'm super feminine for, you know, having survived this disease. Um, the sort of language and the metaphor is very masculine. Um, yeah. and it's very much about this kind of rugged individual, um, sort of libertarian masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that is just the valences that it's given at the time. Um, perhaps because those are the metaphors already sort of on offer to them as in this society, but also because um, I think, I think this is even being, we can see this today with COVID in fact too, that a lot yeah. of the language about sort of rugged um, individual, masculine, brave, healthy, moral, patriot. Um, these are all words that are, you know, subliminally at least um, coded, um, coded sort of masculine. Well, it, it, it providential, like they, one of the things that, that struck me as very alien about the divided response to COVID uh, today is uh, uh, the religious thing. I, with shock, yeah. I watched this viral video of a woman driving off to go to church 
um, during the height of of the lockdown, and uh, somebody asked her, "Why are you going?" And she said, "The blood of the blood of Christ protects me." You know, well, yes, if God is really shining down upon you, you're going to survive. <laughs> this, is the, this is the thing that I, I, you know, I find so. You know, we think about science, um, or I think many people think. I, you know, I I hope more people think about science. And I, I, let, let me rephrase this. Sorry. I think we are um, we have the ability today to see science as a sort of naturalized um, yeah. process as objective that um, that it does not it's no it's it does not bend to you know human will and agency you know the health does not and you know what's fascinating to me about we're seeing this with COVID but in the 19th century too with yellow fever um, we can tell you know human beings um, sort of attributed um, human morality to mosquitoes and to these unthinking viruses because they made this also into uh, they they sort of the logic of yellow fever and epidemic yellow fever became one of the key justifications for slavery hmm. and so they so you you see this from politicians and from doctors and from um, slave traders and pro slavery theorists and ministers they all echoed this. Um, idea that all black people, regardless of where they were from, um, were naturally immune to yellow fever. And this is not true. This is, hmm. this is, there is no truth to this whatsoever. However, um, this in some, I think journalists as, as you know, you might recognize this, they, you know, this is, it was a fact that it was too good to check or something, um, because yeah. this, you know, armed with this, um, theory, however false it was, you could justify the expansion of slavery on a massive scale and say, well, you know, slavery actually yes. is by God, it's sanctioned by the environment. I've seen examples of pro-slavery theorists say that because of black people's natural immunity to yellow fever alleged, um, that God had intended black people to be enslaved and enslaved specifically in the American South. Um, yeah. It was, you know, a God-given providential design. Um, and that's, you know, which is, you know, it's it's entirely wrong and we know also it's wrong because we knew that we know that they knew that it was wrong too because acclimated slaves um in the slave market in new orleans sold for between 25 and 50 percent more hmm. and so this is in some sense a you know they're saying one thing from one side of their mouth about the sort of god-given um the sort of sanctified um the providential design of uh, African or you know racial slavery in the American South. On the one hand, on the on the other hand, they will not buy a person without a guarantee of acclimation. Yeah. And so you have this like it's this is you know pretty classic. If you study the South and you if you study slaveholders, this is um, Exhibit A of the kind of cognitive dissonance that is so typical. Um, you know the Gordian. It's it's it's, it's 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 such a a, a a a comforting story if you're a slave owner who has been yeah. acclimatized. Why why am I in my position? Well, because I've deserved it. Because I yeah. you know I, I am the person who God has has said is is yeah. is fit to look after all these all these dependents. Yes, um, it, it's it's compelling. Yeah, I think we you know we all we we I guess we all look for sort of origin stories for ourselves, I suppose. Um, and that we all look for justifications of a sort to justify what we want to do. And this is, you know, it's it's amazing though how you know science can be morphed into and this is, you know, in American history, this is so often um it's been morphed into a tool to support racism and white supremacy, um, especially in the nineteenth century. And we see, you know, it's 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 deeply subjective, not objective. Um which is, I think, surprising to many people in the 20th century to think of science as a kind of, um, as a human tool to justify um, inequalities or justify privileges or justify, you know, one's own behavior. But um, 
you know, we do it still today. So, so I'm curious about something. Given that people viewed yellow fever as this kind of like natural thing that happened, that God, that that that, that was providential, and given that the people who were really powerful in New Orleans were part of a, 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 an, a, a an old boys club of acclimatized individuals who'd survived yellow fever, what 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 was the state response to yellow fever, and how did this immunocapitalism affect that? Like, did people did the state do anything, or did they just let it? run rampant. So New Orleans, Antebellum New Orleans was by far America's deadliest city, um, you know, by a matter of some, you know, double, sometimes even triple the national average um, or the national, na- the national mortality average in New Orleans because of yellow fever. And so you would think that that would mean that politicians and health officers and even the sort of commercial elite um, would think that health was a problem that needed to be fixed, that that, that was their responsibility to sort of endeavor to Fix the health problem. But I mean, coming from like 2019, I would feel that like that is job number one of a government is to make sure that its citizens didn't die. Like I would think that that's like some some sort of like ingrained kernel of what being a being a member of the state is, is, is that your government makes sure you don't die. But and this is and so actually what's what's interesting is that. I would agree with you that that is um, probably the primary role of government, um, not just today, but also in the 19th century. This is this is the country for American cities where many American cities did adopt that attitude you just you just laid out. So we see cities from Boston to Charleston um, to Chicago all sort of consolidating um, their power and, and thinking of health as and welfare as they're a part of their responsibility to the inhabitants. Yeah, but. New Orleans um, did not take this approach, to say the least. Um, they took probably the opposite approach. They spent the least amount of money on public health and welfare of any other American city. Really, um, the country, the, the city with the highest death rate, spent the least amount of money on public. Um, which you could say is, in some sense, an oxymoron. However, actually, if you scratch the surface, it makes sense to the logic of these guys, which is that their logic is essentially there's nothing we can do to fix yellow fever. Um, just because quarantines have worked in New York or in you know Germany or in the UK, that doesn't mean that they're going to work here. Um, qu- you know, quarantines are prejudicial to commerce. They're going to yeah. hurt our bottom line, which is the whole reason why we're here, um, because we are this pass-through economy where we need to get products out to the world as quickly as possible. So they hurt the economy. And sanitation in, in a city like New Orleans, which is one foot above sea level, is very difficult. Um, draining the city is basically impossible. So they take this attitude that sort of commercial civic elite, they take this attitude that the answer to yellow fever is not expensive infrastructural sort of infrastructure like public, you know, in public health. The answer to yellow fever is actually paradoxically more yellow fever. Hmm. This is essentially, there's any kind of um, quarantine is only delaying the inevitable. Uh, this is only just, you know, delay, putting, pushing, you know, kicking the can down the road for these people who have to get acclimated. Um, yeah. And it is, you know, they don't have to care about unacclimated people. Um, yeah, because they're not real citizens. Unacclimated uh, uh, un- people are not real citizens. They're not, they're, 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 they're strangers. And, and there's all sorts of, you know, again, perverse incentives um, in place for politicians to essentially ignore the unaccommodated block because this is, you know, they don't – very often they're, they don't vote because they haven't been in New Orleans very long or they haven't been in the United States for very long. Um, they, you know, they're not very – they're not necessarily all that well established. They don't have tons of money. And we have this like, system in which – like, you know, why are we going to waste our political capital on protecting these people? We will care about them once they have been sort of legitimized by the environment. 
Um, yeah. You know, if you if you surpass the Rubicon, wonderful. Um, welcome aboard. Um, however, until then, we don't care about you. And there's, you know, there was essentially no political consequences for any politician ignoring this block because, you know, fu- fundamentally acclimated men vote. Uh, you know, dead men, dead, dead men don't vote. So they don't they don't care about this. Um, and it's 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 it sounds it's 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 like an ultra libertarian, ultra um, sort of. You know, this is this is this is individualism um, sort of written into the structures of government um, in a way that's um, I find personally scary because I, I feel like I can see the kind of um, the, the same language being repeated today um, about you know if you're a real patriot if you you know if you go out and get the economy started back up again if you risk this, this disease you know that's you know it's it's your choice however you know choices uh, that's not the right word um, it's not it's not a, it's not a true choice if you are considering, you know, either facing this disease or starvation or yeah. the inability to pay your rent or protect your children. That, you know, that's not, that's not a choice. Yeah. One, one of the things that struck me about reading your article was that it it, it felt like a, 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 a really potent mirror of the, the discourse around COVID right now that I do not understand. Like I can mm-hmm. tell that there's conservatives who are talking in this, in this way that, that, that uh, I should be allowed to choose to not wear a mask in public, but it feels to me so repulsive and, 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 and alien that I can't understand it. And reading your, your, your article, I was struck by, by, by how closely it seemed that that it didn't seem that the, reading your article made me realize that this was not an aberration. That the, this strain of thinking is was has been alive in American life for at least two hundred years. But how how is just to close? How has it been to see this stuff that you study come alive in the news over the past couple months? Well, I mean, it's if it if it takes a pandemic to make your work relevant, um, I think you <laughs> that's a problem, I guess. Yeah. Um, fundamentally, with you, um, I mean, I, I it, the, honestly, the first couple of weeks of all of this, I, I think, like everyone felt, I was overwhelmed. Um, you know, reading, I would be reading about yellow fever and getting New York Times alerts on my phone about you know, you know about all sorts of things to do with COVID, and it's you know, it's on the one hand, it's sort of. Um, it was overwhelming, but it's, it's actually one of the sort of, I feel like I'm, I've, I've been the silver lining of all this to me is that I feel like, you know, when you write historical articles or when you, you know, when you work on books, you're dealing with people in the past for the most part, but I feel like I've seen a lot of my, um, ideas be sort of proved almost, mm. um, in yeah. a way that I don't think that a lot of historians get the privilege of that. Um, you don't, you don't get to see the sort of theory play out, um, in real life. And, you know, I, I said, you know, I said to my parents and to my students and to my husband, I'm like, you know, wait until, wait until they start talking about, um, you know, going out and risking COVID as being this sort of patriotic thing. You know, I said this like, two, two months ago and lo and behold, it happened and wait until they talk, start talking about immunity passports and lo and behold, that's happening too. And, you know, wait until, you know, we talk about, you know, wait, wait until we see just how, um, you know, differentially this is being experienced um, by, it, you know, you know, across the world, of course, but in this country, you know, between people with money, people without money, and people with salaried jobs and people with wage jobs, or people in the gig economy and people who aren't, and I mean, this is, and of course, um, you know, th- all of this sort of other forms of inequality in our society, I think, are really, you know, we can see the stitching show right now. Yeah. Um, you know, we have severe inequities to do with race and gender and ethnicity and geography, and this this pandemic is is not necessarily. Um, no, it's it's exposing um, 
all of these existing inequalities in this huge um, way that, so it's, you know, I would say that, you know, for me as a historian, it's been sort of both overwhelming and gratifying um, who said, you know, somebody who said studies epidemics. Um, but I also, you know, man, I hope that we don't see all of the, you know, I, I don't want to go back to the past. This is, um, yeah. this is, that would be horrible. Um, and, you know, we, we don't need to, I, I, you know, I knock on wood, but you know, it's, 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 it's been bizarre to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Catherine. That's been a, a great conversation. Um, uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tell an in-law. Um, in-laws seem to like the show for some reason. Uh, and I, I thank Catherine for, for coming on the show. And I have to thank uh, Duncan Barton for the music and Jonathan Lear for the image. Uh, we will be back uh, next week, hopefully with another historian. Um, thank you. And now this is the end. We're, we're, well, I'll stop recording. <laughs>